You are listening to the NAGRA Podcasters Network. Hola. Sorry, wrong podcast. Did you think about how you're going to start this? Just so you know, that's high in Spanish. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So we're here in the one dish, one mic studio, and there's another person with us again. Wow. I love having guests. It's not Trevor. No, it's not Trevor, too. I love having non-Trevor. I love having non-Trevor guests. Just kidding. Just kidding. But but Trevor is still here. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. So uh, we are here with the one and only Emily Spanton, who just wrapped up her four-part series on opioids in Niagara. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're really excited to have you. Um, unfortunately, Niagara is ahead of the pack when it comes to drugs, isn't it? That's one way of putting it. Um, yeah, it's Niagara has one of the highest death rates in the province. It's really not pretty. We're up there with northern communities that I think coming from southern Ontario, we have this idea that the north is really poor. Well, so is Niagara. Niagara beats them in a lot of categories, and one of them... We're up there with them, I guess, when it comes to opioid deaths. In the heart of the One Dish with One Spoon Treaty territory, Niagara's Sean Vanderclis and Carl Dockstader dish on any and all issues from a First Nations perspective. From pipeline politics to poverty to pan-Indianism and more, Sean shares his concrete curve lake take and Carl gives an urban Oneida angle. You are listening to One Dish, One Mike on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Last year, if you're looking at just December... We had three times the provincial average. Wow. That's amazing. That's crazy. So yeah. just thinking about that. So we've got 3% of the population of the province, and yeah. yet we had 12% of the ODs. That is... OD deaths. I want to be clear yeah, yeah. on that. The OD deaths. So wow. there's a difference between... There is. There okay. is. Yeah, with naloxone um, and all the, the other harm reduction from safe injection sites... Um, public health campaigns, just people being more aware um, that you can now call 911 and not be charged for possession. Um, That's been a huge change in friends' attitudes when it comes to seeing their friends ODing. Uh, They're more willing to call for help. Um, But a lot of people, I think it was just under 600, it was 592 people were actually seen in an ER. So had an opioid overdose, were treated uh, with naloxone and whatever else they needed. Um, yeah. Some were hospitalized. I believe it was it was 200 and something, just under 300. Um, so about half had to be hospitalized yeah. um, while the rest were just treated and released. Um, and yet still, despite having that many people seen in hospitals, we still had 76 people die. How many people? 76 for wow. the year, last year for the year. How does that compare to the previous year? Uh, The previous year was 40. So almost double. So when you start to think about that, um, one in two people by the age of 40 in Canada has experienced mental illness. When you're looking at doubling the amount of people dying from things like drug overdoses, um, think of the amount of population that are affected. The last, the last numbers that, uh, for me, I'll, I can get a little lost swimming in the numbers, but but I I can handle that. There's basically twice as many deaths in 2017 as there were in 2016. Yes. That's, that's huge. That is, um, we have a population of under 500,000 and 76 people died. When you start to do the numbers, if we double again, let's say next year we're at 150, um, that's outpacing 
I think I believe almost any other cause of death, particularly in youth, Um, especially since we're seeing them as accidental overdoses. These aren't people who we have this idea, this this classic idea of a junkie on the street, someone who's been using for a lot of years. They're homeless. They're dirty. We we have this image in our head. And that's not, first of all, what people are really like. Yeah. First of all, let's mm-hmm. just say that. Yep. Um, but second of all, that's not who's dying. We're seeing 21-year-old college students whose parents had no idea they were even using drugs, alone had an issue. A lot of these kids don't have issues. Um, they're getting bad drugs. And that's what the big problem is. So we're not just losing your your concept of what a drug a drug addict or a drug mm-hmm. user is. We are literally losing children mm-hmm. who wow. just don't know. Opioids. What is that? Okay, so I'm gonna. I'll be. I'll try enough for dummies, but give you some real explanations. So, an opiate with a t e at the end is derived. It's an actual natural substance derived from an opium poppy. So, opium, morphine, heroin. They we didn't create them in a lab. Yeah, we just played with a poppy and we made these things. Um, An opioid is something created in a lab. It's a synthesized version okay. of opium Okay. Um, that have different levels. And the, see, the thing is with opium, we have four different receptors in our brain that are mainly affected by opioids when you do them. And they, they affect different things. So one affects your respiration. So it calms your respiration. Um, and that's what actually mostly kills people is depressing your respiration. There's another one that kind of puts you into um, sleep. It's more like a paralytic. It's kind of like what you would get as an anesthetic effect kind of thing. Like they all affect different things. And different opioids have been developed to only affect certain things okay so they do have a very specific point especially in cancer treatment yeah things like that they've designed they've been designed to affect um trigger the pain responses and and to cut them without actually affecting some of the other parts of you some of the other side effects and parts of your body i guess is the best way to put right. it if that makes sense okay have these drugs always been around um, opiates have always been around. So naturally des- derived have always been around. We're talking thousands and thousands of years. There is evidence of people um, using opium the same way they have other drugs from marijuana to LSD to peyote. Yeah. Um, you could really, I mean, people experiment with mind altering substances. Even alcohol is an even better example. Um, but the opioids, the synthetically created have been around. They started, I guess the late eighteen hundreds is when we really developed chemicals, and we had the ability to start creating these different kind of drugs. Um, that's when codeine got separated as well, things like that, yeah. into the early twentieth century. But it's really only since I'd say the sixties, seventies, eighties, and really the nineties with onc- OxyContin. The nineties okay. with OxyContin. If you could edit that to me. <laughs> I, I slid, the first one didn't sound good. <laughs> yeah, we don't edit on the show. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we've had opiates forever, basically. Forever. Yeah. forever. Uh, we've had opioids for the past hundred years, give or take. Yeah, um, but we are now in the midst of a ramped up full speed opioid crisis. What brought mm-hmm. that on? Well, a large part of that does have to do with doctors overprescribing in the 90s. OxyContin came out, which is also when Percocet came out. Percocet is OxyContin, a very small dose, five milligrams in combination with Tylenol. That is what a Percocet is. Okay. Um, 
So the doctors were told by Big Pharma that it was not addictive. That is what is different about this opioid. And we know that we need opioids. Uh, Mother Nature gave us opiates for a reason. They do have a very strong place in our medicine, just as marijuana does. These are just natural components that we should be utilizing. Um, But when you get to these extremes, creating things like fentanyl, um, and now carfentanil is a thousand times worse than fentanyl, which is a thousand times worse than heroin. At what point do we we stop? And the problem is that these aren't even drugs that are created in pill form that you can just buy, things like that, or your pharmacist prescribes. You get them in a patch. These are literally end-of-life pain medications that you would wear a patch for 24 hours and people wear gloves to change them on you. Um, And people are taking these and draining the drug out of the patch and adding that to street heroin, adding that to whatever other drug. And it's just so potent that it's not meant to be ingested that way at all. It's meant to be slowly absorbed through your skin intramuscularly, um, not meant to be injected. How much, how culpable is Big Pharma in this? Um, I would, so I, I struggle with that. I, I did struggle with that for a little while, but then I did some serious research because that's what I do. We all know me. <laughs> I, I research. So things I found out. Um, in 2001, before 9-11, the Taliban had been in control of Afghanistan and their poppy fields um, for several years. And they had gotten to the point where they were at, actually at the lowest uh, cultivation of poppies in history. They were down to, I believe it was 100 tons, something like that, um, or less. It was like a small, yeah. small number. Uh, now, last year, the U.S. troops, a U.S. military was protecting the fields in Afghanistan, and they produced record-breaking, um, according to the U.N., Drug Commission, because I got my figures from someone real. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It was 900 tons of opium poppies, like opium, 900 tons. Um, So it's that's just in the last 17 years since this whole war in the Middle East. And it really I'm not into conspiracy theories and these rabbit holes that one can go down. But it does make you want to stop and look at the bigger picture. Um. Yeah, so I, I think... I don't know that, if it's much of a stretch if you're trying to make the argument that maybe wars are sometimes fought with financial interests in well, mind. Yes. I mean, heaven forbid that someone say that, right? But I that, know, that that's might very be an element. I will. an element in this. <laughs> I, I think it's the gas versus opium. I think we all agree that a lot of these wars in the Middle East are fought over oil. Yeah. Um, no one thinks of the fact that they're also fought over opium. I mean, that's what the that's why Hong Kong became British. When you start to look at the history that's been fought over drugs, it's actually... Almost as much as we've had um, wars over religion, I'd say. That's oh, wow. When you start to think about it, yeah. And there, if you want to read more about that, that's actually in one of the four amazing articles that that you wrote for the Sound St. Catharines in your series. So, uh, and that segues to what I wanted to ask next: Why drugs? Why did you write about drugs? You could have you're you're a talented writer. You're engaged in a lot of things. You're very knowledgeable and active in the community, but. Uh, This is your first major series and multi-part series in this area. Why drugs? Um, I am actually an addiction counselor. I'm certified in this. I went to school for this. Um, But it was a second career. I started out in a very different career, um, more in law, real estate, politics, this whole kind of contract law. We'll call it contract law. Um, And then I lost friends to drug addiction. I realized I myself came from a family with 
some problems with alcohol and some things that I just, I realized I wanted to re-examine my life at 30. And I ended up going back to school to study this. And it's something I'm always been very passionate about. And I'm seeing people die. You, you just, you can't work in this industry or be part of the community, even going to any community event without hearing someone has fallen. And that's really where we are as a community in Niagara. And that's sad. Just today, I went by Willow and ran into Fred and he told me about two different people, one who survived their OD and one who didn't. You're talking about Fred, Fred Bowering, Bowering our friend, who Fred stayed Bowering. in the park for 32 consecutive days yes. to raise awareness around the op- opioid crisis yes. and homelessness and right and murdered and missing Indigenous women, yep. which is another big topic for him. But um, yeah, that's just when you start to look at it in terms of that, I start to think about, um, you know, one and two split split the room in half. How many people around you? are going to be struggling with something like this, and they're not going to feel comfortable talking about it. Another stat I read from CMHA, um, or sorry, CAMH, from the uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health, is that 76% of Ontario workers would not feel comfortable telling their boss that they were suffering from a mental illness, depression, anxiety, stress. Um, the wow, other stat was, I believe... Yeah. Yeah, and then it was high 60s, so less than... It was not that much less. Um, if they were suffering, would not tell someone. So it, it, it's on both sides. Like people don't want to see it, and people wouldn't tell. That sort yeah. of begs begs the question that uh, you were talking earlier about the classic junkie, right? Well, that's true. Is is the so called classic junkie and and the people that are that are uh, being affected by the opioid crisis. Is it that stereotype of somebody pushing around a shopping cart, living in an alleyway, sparing for change? Like, um, they're actually less likely to die from the opioid crisis. Um, not see, I hate to use words like that. Um, but it's, it, that's not who we're typically losing. We are losing people like that, but it's more issues to do with homelessness and other poverty issues. They're not dying from ODs. The people dying from ODs are, 25 to 35 white men. Wow. Um, and that's not who you picture walking right. around on the streets. Literally 25 to 35 year old white men are dropping like flies. Um, and a large part of that is that they use alone. They, they think they're invincible. So they use alone. And when you use alone, you die alone. Yeah. It's wow. that simple. Yeah, it's interesting when you start to break things down. I find all these facts fascinating. The actual statistics, not that it really changes the fact that these are all people's children. These people all mean something to someone, um, whether they were deep into their addiction or not. These are human beings. um, And they did not intend that to be their last shot. They did not intend that to be their last day. And I think that we have a responsibility to take care of people until they're ready to take care of themselves and that we owe, maybe owe is not the word, but I, I just, I like to believe that's a society in which we live. I like to believe yeah. that's what community is. And, and I, that's just maybe the better way, I guess, the way I would like to see things. So, so we're, we've seen an, a drastic increase this past year. Mm-hmm. So what do you think we're doing wrong as, as, as a society, as Niagara, as a community, what could we do better? See, and that's the thing. It's not that we're doing anything wrong per se. I think that the community has really rallied. Um, there's a lot of harm reduction and other educational components yeah. going on. Um, we're passing out naloxone. More and more strangers, people who don't even know people, uh, are carrying it right. and are able to help strangers. Um, I think that it is 
just part, it's a symptom of a greater institutional failing that has to do with poverty, that has to do with options for people, that has to do with wait lists for mental health and other addictions mm-hmm. programming. I mean, if you're waiting six to nine months, a year, a lot of people wait over a year. Right. Um, you're going to die in a year. A year is a long time to be living in addiction right. or mental health issues. If you're struggling every day to get up and not kill yourself, a year is excruciatingly right. long. Um, and I hate to use terms that bleak, but that can be what it's like for people. They continue to use because they cannot face anything else. Um, and that's just, that saddens me. These are There are people out there who want help and they just cannot get it because they're waiting. That's what, uh, one of the rules that, that we try to adhere to at the Friendship Center, I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. capacity doesn't allow us to do it, but but at that moment when somebody is ready to ask for help, you have to be ready to offer yeah. them that help because they they won't be ready before yeah. they ask. Yeah. And if you wait too long, they may not be ready, ready exactly. afterwards. But that, that speaks to a larger societal value and something mm-hmm. we talk about on One Dish, One Mike. I mean, it, it, does it come down to money? Is it is it that there's not capacity in society to create the resources that are needed for people that need the help? Like it, it would be expensive to change the way we philosophically look. I don't. I think when you start to look at the amount of funding we spend in hospitals doing emergency treatment, how much we're spending on EMS to go out to these calls, police, uh, I believe it was 70%, NRPS told me 70% of their calls are mental health related. How much time are they wasting on resources if these were better allocated to begin with and to prevent these issues? I don't think it would cost us more. I think it's just a matter of looking at what our priorities are and maybe changing how we're spending money. Another thing that you talk about in your articles is that we criminalized drug use a while ago. And I still think that there's this pervasive attitude that that drug user equals criminal, right? Mm, And is that that a social hump that we need to get over? Um, I think so. I think that if you're using, you shouldn't be charged. I think that when you do want to get clean and you get clean, it's a huge impediment to finding a job, place to live, all the kind of things that you need to get clean. Um, And if you're trying to change your past, you shouldn't really have to focus on that. If you're charged with something that is violent or something else, that's a whole other ballgame. I'm not advocating on anything like that. We're talking about simple possession. You were caught using um, do you need the rest of your life damage from that? You're not going to stop because you spent a night in jail or you received a ticket. It's not helping anyone and it's wasting the court costs. It's court costs. So it's all of our time. So do you think it would be effective to divert money and resources from corrections over to treatment? Yes. Okay. But I think first, um, I have a caveat to that is that We need to change our treatment model to begin with. Right now, people get sent away for, they wait forever for a 21-day treatment. Um, That is literally just detox. You're not talking about why you used. You're not talking about how you feel today, your self-image, your family, Mm -hmm. your supports, your everything that's happened to you in this time. You're just getting the drugs out of your system. And 21 days isn't enough. It takes 
Um, so my specialty is concurrent disorders when you have a mental illness and an addiction. And in concurrent disorders, we wait six months before we diagnose you with anything because we want you clean for six months. And yeah. some cases you do need to add other things, antidepressants or things, but you do you wait your longest to try and get everything out of your system so you can tell what is drug induced. Yeah. Because a lot of things are drug induced. So you've been using long enough that could be drug induced psychosis. You're not yeah. really crazy. You just have put way too much shit in your head. Yeah. Um, for lack of better, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I lost where I was. What can we do? Like, uh, I, I guess we we are right now. If if someone is getting high, I think that society is stigmatizing them. Yep. I think that's a safe yep. statement to I make. I think so. If they go and look for help, they may or may not get help. They may yeah. go into a treatment stream, which you you just stated is is less than perfect, um, Very, but better yes. than nothing. Yes. Or they may end up in a correction stream. So what's what's happening with with corrections? Is why why is corrections problematic for somebody? You could just throw them in a cell and and they could detox there, right? Well, you would think, but um, people are still ODing in correctional facilities. In Niagara, we had five ODs in one day. Oh wow! Um, one one Recent, Saturday afternoon. <laughs> recently. Um, when was that? It was spring. So a few months ago, within this wow. year. That's amazing. Uh, March, April. And then we also had in Hamilton Wentworth, their correctional facility had nine people OD 10 times in one week. So going into a correctional facility is not a detox. It's not addressing anything. Um, and they're not even getting sober most of the time. Yeah. You're just creating more criminality, I think. And you are perpetuating this culture within institutions instead of looking at how to rehabilitate. I think we've forgotten about this idea of rehabilitation that we all kind of dreamt up in the sixties and seventies and thought, Hey, this is a great idea. But unless you're a youth and they're really trying to divert you through other programs, I think a lot of people get lost in a system that isn't actually helping them. Um, and I, but I think these are all poverty issues coming, you know, drugs and incarceration, um, so incarceration, drug use, um, lack of employment, lack of support systems, mental health help, all of these things add up to a sick society. How are you supposed to make something of yourself? How are you supposed to distance yourself from your parents who were addicts or um, you were raised by your grandma who was older and not always there? You know, right. she was there for you, but she, she wasn't able to guide you on the streets or whatever your situation is. We all come from something different. Right. Um, and I think that that's something we need to be looking more at holistically, I guess. Is that how? Yeah. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. So there's a connection between poverty and drug use? Not necessarily. When See, here's the thing. We've long touted that. And it was a giant, giant thing, 100% until OxyContin. Um, OxyContin really changed the game. I mean, it, they call it hillbilly heroin. Um, it's also the same way a lot of, um, after World War One and Two, a lot of soldiers came back addicted to heroin. And that's kind of where heroin stigma was kind of not pushed as much because these were returning soldiers. If right. you were white, it was just, you know, it was just the jazz men yeah. that were bad, the black, you know, like it was just the state. Yeah. Um, and we're seeing that again. We've got people coming back from Afghanistan, from Iraq, from these wars overseas where they've been injured and 
they don't have many options. They become addicted to something. And a lot of it is mental health issues, PTSD that isn't being addressed, um, other things like that. But it, it's so there isn't really an answer. I hate to say that. I, I would love to say it's one thing that created this opioid crisis. And if we did this one thing, it mm-hmm. would fix it. Um, thankfully, we've addressed the fact that opioids are addictive. Um, doctors are not prescribing them en masse. But the problem with that is they've cut people off. So now people who are getting a steady stream of prescription opioids have nothing. So now they're going to the street and they're yeah. doing heroin. And that's how they overdose. Um, so that's what I mean, where you're not seeing your traditional junkies. These are people who a few months ago were doctor prescribed junkies. And now they're shooting heroin. And because drugs are illegal, people are forced into uh, channels that, that aren't controlled, aren't regulated, don't don't have any of the safeguards of, of the healthcare true. system. But if they stay within the healthcare system, the healthcare system itself isn't isn't equipped it's to failing, handle them. Yeah. So it's a lose lose situation for for a lot of people. It's very true. Very true. To try to keep it positive, though, uh, St. <laughs> Catharines did something good, right? Yes. Like, it's not it's not going to magically fix the problem, but I think that uh, all of the politicians in St. Catharines back the philosophy of harm reduction, right? Yes. As to my understanding, yes. Okay. What's what's the difference between harm reduction and getting people off drugs, and getting them out of the life of crime? And- um, harm reduction is exactly what it sounds like, reducing the harm. So let's stop, um, do what we can to prevent disease spreading through shared needles, to do what we can about preventing people from overdosing and dying, do what we can to pre- make sure that there aren't needles on the streets. So giving people safe places to use. Um, and that's not just about overdosing. That's about literally keeping people out of the parks. But if they have no other option, where are they going to go? Um, so the more we talk about these things, the yeah. more we can remove that stigma and the more we can figure out real solutions. As long as people are always thinking it's someone else's problem, we're not actually going to get anywhere. There isn't one great magic card that we're just going to play suddenly and everything's going to work out. Um, we just need to continue to have these conversations. I think that's, um, but yeah, St. Catharines did go ahead and open a safe injection site or they're attempting to, they've gotten approval for it. They say they're going to go ahead with it, that the funding was guaranteed, but until Ford takes over, we don't really, <laughs> yeah. So it's all, unfortunately, the that yeah. kind of positive policy action is, is potentially under jeopardy, right? Yes. But- because again, it comes back to how will they pay for the harm reduction Well, and that's what I think. I think at worst, I don't see Doug Ford closing them. I think that that would be too much of a backlash immediately, but I see him not funding them. So I think communities like St. Catharines are going to have to look at, is this something that we can fund through our existing programming or do we have to make a choice? There still is a notion in society that that fuels the Doug Ford type thinking. Like I would say once every six months, I see that post on Facebook that says that before people should be able to receive OW or other types of government assistance, (laughs) they should be tested for drugs. And unfortunately, it gets a lot of likes and it gets a lot of a lot of favorable comments. A lot of shares. Yeah. What's what's dangerous about that type of thinking? Okay, first of all, um, when you're poor, you can't afford things like massage therapist or physical therapist you have an accident you either take meds or you do nothing um so that is a lot of the problem with people doing things like opioids and even smoking medical marijuana a lot of that has to do with pain management um because people simply cannot afford the other services that might deal with it in another way so 
the judgment is dangerous. Yeah. I think yeah. is is Thank I you. hope I hope something we can all we can all agree on. But it doesn't it doesn't seem intuitive, right? There's still to me there still seems like there's a notion in society that we'd love to have more social housing, but we don't want to put up. Even though you said it's mm-hmm. not a bunch of you know the stereotypical mm-hmm. sort of user, we don't want to put a bunch of users in in housing, right? It's the NIMBY. The not in my neighborhood thing. Yeah, we all have this yeah. idea that it's a great thing to do, just not in my neighborhood. Um, Riverdale in Toronto, a neighborhood in Toronto, yeah. which has Riverdale Farm, for those of you who have ever been, um, <laughs> recently had a big debate on Facebook because a shelter, an actual shelter for women was closing and people wanted to replace it with a daycare and the neighbors were up in arms and they actually protested against a daycare going in and stopped it going in. So they could save the shelter? No, no, oh. just they oh, didn't want just... screaming children outside their house. Oh, my goodness. So <laughs> I think that's a prime example of not my neighborhood. Um, last I checked, daycares are during the day when most people are at work. And Riverdale's a family kind of community. But um I think no matter what we do, there's always going to be those detractors who think there, there's something. But um, with social housing, <clears throat> we need units for families. That's a big thing that we're not seeing enough of. And I think actually what will be, a hopefully, I'm hoping is a better step forward, is the integrated transit regionally. Um, a large problem people have is getting to different services. They're only offered in one community or another. Yeah. And right now, navigating the different buses can be quite difficult for people. So I'm hoping that that is something going forward the region will be looking at. Um, maybe smarter planning of where we're putting affordable housing, where we're putting those kind of services and ensuring that they're on transit lines yeah. so that people can actually access them. So there, I've, there's been a lot to digest here. <laughs> But uh, I think it's good. I think this is a really important episode for for people to listen to. And this is a little outside of what Sean and I normally talk about. You might think, but but in actuality, I think I think that unfortunately, Indigenous people are used to living in the margins <laughs> and coming from a place where people don't understand us. See, so. but I think that from that, you have so much to give to the rest of us just trying to figure that out. Um, I've found that a lot of people, even my white friends or white clients who I've sent into indigenous um, treatments have actually been more successful. So going away and doing sweat lodges Mm -hmm. and doing traditional healing and that kind of thing has actually made them uh, more successful in the long run at staying clean and the sense of community they built out of that, the sense Mm -hmm. of there's just so much attached to it that I think that that's actually a great model that we should be looking at more publicly. What's the holistic approach that, we try to incorporate in every aspect of our lives, exactly. right? When it comes down to it, like when you when you made the reference earlier to people being are going into treatment centers, right? That's twenty one days of isolation, but you're merely treating the disease. You're not treating the whole issue. Exactly. Right? Well, you're not even treating the disease. Oh, exactly. You're literally you're, just you're getting rid waiting, of the drug, waiting but... for the poison to fall out. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I find that those who get community around them who have those kind of things um that is the number one success so it's desire to -hmm. get clean and number two is community and supports i think that i think that'd be the trick is that because i've grown up in and around the indigenous community and in and around our indigenous community i was always raised with that notion that your life is bigger than the sum of your own individual success but as i as i read about this story in the paper 
papers and then as I see people coming in through the through the court work system navigating the justice system that are affected and as I start to understand the crisis I'm starting to realize that that it is our next door neighbors and that it it is every single neighborhood in in all of the cities that are affected and and it does seem to me to be logical that increasing the sense of community in of course in indigenous communities yeah. but also in non-indigenous communities that, that that's that's a pretty uh, uh, simple thing that you stand to benefit from anyways by getting out mm-hmm. to those third places but then by putting yourself in a space where you become available as, as a resource Very to somebody true. that they might not not want to walk into a building on its own and ask for help or mm-hmm. they may not want to pick up the phone and call a 1-800 number but if they see emily walking down the street yeah. or carl walking down the street yeah. or, or sean walking down the street or trevor walking down the street then then maybe they'll just say hey can i talk to you yeah I used to hate to sit behind the desk in my office. That was kind of my rule because I felt like it was a barrier for people to come talk to me having a desk there. So I used to just like to sit in the the lounge and have people come talk to me, you know. Um, I think that that's really the answer to a lot of Niagara's problems is we need to reinstill a sense of community. I think we've really kind of lost what that is there are a lot of new people coming in we've lost a lot of people i think niagara is in a bit of turmoil and i think once we figure out what our identity is um away from hamilton away from toronto away from casinos and just figure out what niagara is that i think we'll actually start on the path to really building something great because we have the potential to be great and we are filled with so many incredible people doing so many incredible things um but i think a lot of people are getting left behind and that's where we're failing that's fair. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of silos in Niagara, right? That's where, a great where way to put it. Where there's the native community, right? Mm-hmm. That's exclusive to the native community and then the Jewish community, the Polish community, yeah. black community, so on and so forth. But if you don't fit this definition or if you don't have that connection, mm-hmm. you're like you said, you're getting that left, identity, that identity, right? You're yeah. getting left behind. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, Carl. No, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I just thought that would be a nice kind of put it all together at the end. Yeah. Some nice sound clips from us. <laughs> <laughs> you got a little editing to do. <laughs> so this is a point in the show where we do what's called the traveling thought. Essentially what that is, is if you're not a frequent listener, is we give you the opportunity to kind of drive home the point that you want to get across. I think the message to take away is that the opioid crisis is affecting everyone. It's not someone down the street. It's not that person in the next town or up north. It's your neighbor. Um, Every family is being affected. More and more um, on social media, you see, I've lost this person. You've lost this person. It is affecting everyone in Niagara. 76 people died last year. Um, I think the message is really that we need to be doing more about having a bigger conversation because it really isn't drugs. This isn't about drugs. This is about poverty. This is about opportunities and the lack of opportunities and the lack of even mental health services. So not just opportunities to move forward, but opportunities to seek help. Um, That's what we need to be focused on. It's simply another (laughs) symptom of a sick system. Hashtag. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. We need to hashtag that. (laughs) And say it three times fast. Exactly. I, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't want to talk over all those, all those great points that you made. Um, I'm, 
glad that you can see that it's it's everybody it's not yeah. it's not just a drug user's problem it's yeah. it's our problem as a collective as a group of people mm-hmm. that that choose to live here yeah i completely and it's not just our problem it's everyone's problem in ontario we can't think about it in terms of oh um, any form of separation. Yeah. Like we've really gotten to a point in mental illness and other addictions where we need to be having right. honest conversations and removing these stigmas. The more we have, we continue to perpetuate the shame. And the more we keep these things hidden and the more we hush kind of behind people's backs and you don't yeah. want to really talk about, oh, did you hear about that? We're just continuing it and we're not making anything better. Let's say it loud and let's have conversations and let's find solutions and actually move forward together. That's the only way we are going to move forward is together. That's awesome. Well said. Agreed. Agreed. Do you have a final thought, Mr. Not that I can top. (laughs) I can't top that. Systems, systems, hashtag. (laughs) No. I have moments. (laughs) They're fleeting. You're shining bright right now. This has been a truly special episode with a truly special person. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I love you guys. It's been an honor. It's been an honor to be here. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, you've been listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network right here in the pop-up podcast studio right in hashtag STC. Our home. STC? Our home on native land. On? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Nagitwa. Love you guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Dish, One Mic on the Niagara Podcasters Network. Your hosts are Carl Dockstader and Sean Vanderpuss. Recording is done at the Pop-Up Podcast Studio at Cowork Niagara, home of Niagara's independent workforce. Executive producer is Trevor Twining. Production assistance by Daniel Twining. Show artwork by Mitch Baird. Music by DJ Shub, used with permission. If you have show ideas or comments, you can reach us on Twitter at Niagara Podcasts.